Welcome to Book Reporter Talks To, a podcast from the Book Report Network, where we host in-depth conversations with authors about the books that we love. We know authors cannot travel everywhere, so we want to bring them to you, wherever you may be. Welcome, 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 everyone. Welcome to our Bookachino Live book group event with Shelby Van Pelt. We are so excited to have you here this evening. So as you come in, if you could jump into the chat and let us know where you're from. We always like to know how many cities and states and countries we've covered with one of these events. So if you could do that, it'd be fabulous. Um, jump into the chat and do that. And we love seeing this in Lawrence, Kansas, people from all over the place. So excited about this evening's event. It is promising to be just a fabulous evening. We have so many great questions from audience members already. Um, we're, what we're going to do is we'll be going to some of the questions from the audience a little bit later on. If you have a question later on, we will we'll be taking some out of the Q&A as well. So um, plan to drop your questions into the Q&A. Chat is so you can tell us where you're from. And the Q&A is for questions. So Tom Donatio, our voice of God, does not have to look later on and go through everything to try to find the questions. And if a question has already been answered, um, he'll skip over that one. So if you're we're missing anybody's questions, you know that that's the reason. I'm just going to wait while everybody comes in. I guess I'm having some fabulous music playing at this point. I promise not to sing or hum. And we'll just give it a couple more minutes as people are coming in. As I am always a couple of minutes late, I always want to give people time to get in and get a little bit settled. Welcome, welcome, welcome. We're so looking forward to this conversation about remarkably bright creatures. Kind of funny, my screen is like doing this moving thing. It looks like the book is moving behind me. I'm like, whoa, what is that about? <laughs> so everyone just get started in just one second. Aha, I'm seeing some familiar names there as we're coming on as well. Okay, give it a couple more minutes. Welcome to everyone. Oh, I, yes, people are saying they love this book so much. We, I did as well, and I see why people have been so, so, so excited about this as a read. So here's what we're going to do. Let us get started, and I am going to share. I'm Carol Fitzgerald from readinggroupguides.com, a website from the Book Report Network. And I am so, so happy to welcome you to our evening event, Bookachino Live. I'm usually the host of the Book Reporter Talks to video podcast series, but we do these evening events where we can get you to be able to interact with the authors a little bit more. We'd like it to be somebody where, oh, the book's been out for a while, so you've had an opportunity to read it. But into the chat over on the right-hand side, I have dropped the uh, URL if anyone has not read the book or to support the author, we'd like you to also think about buying a book for somebody else that you enjoyed the book, um, that you, since you enjoyed it so much, think about um, doing that with the book for uh, buying it for somebody else. So welcome to our Bookachino Live book group event where our guest tonight, as you all know, is Shelby Van Pelt. And we are gonna be discussing her novel, Remarkably Bright Creatures, her debut novel. Her novel has been a rocking huge success and has done so, so very well. In fact, I just checked before we came on the air, it's in its 39th week on the New York Times bestseller list, which is amazing. Last May, when the book came out, or May, when the book came out in 2022, 
Um, in our book report or review, Rebecca Monroe said, Shelby Van Pelt has written the debut of the year, an absorbing, uplifting novel populated by a cast of perfectly imperfect characters who you want to root, sob, and risk everything for. And I think that sums it up pretty well about the way we felt about the book. So tonight's book event is a little bit different for me because usually I've read the book in advance and I've said, oh, this is a book I love and I would like to talk about it with the audience. And what's different this time is that I hadn't read this book, but everyone has said to me, you have to read this book. You're going to love it. So I went in on blind faith with our readers and booked Shelby. And then what I did was I said, okay, I'm going to sit down and read this book. And on page 20, I was completely engaged. And then from there, it was like an off to the races. And I was saying, I read 150 pages on the exercise bike. I read 150 pages on the couch. And I really couldn't put it down. And after 100 pages, I said, I see why people are so excited about this book and why they're talking about it so lovingly. So the format is going to be like this tonight. We're going to start out with me having some conversation with Shelby. And we're going to also be talking spoilers. Okay, spoilers will be a part of this conversation. Um, if you haven't read the book, well, you had your time. And remember, I do want you to be thinking about going out and buying it. If you're in a book group, suggest that your book group go out and buy it. I'm going to drop into the chat where you can go out and buy it. And if you have read it, this is a great book to give as a gift. We would love you to be doing that. And more than that, we'd like you to be able to go out and talk to your book club a little bit more about this book tonight after tonight's discussion, because you will know so much more after being able to hear some more from Shelby about it. Now, I'm going to start talking with Shelby, and then a couple of our readers are going to come on live, and then a couple of people who didn't want to be, oh, they're a little more camera shy, I'm going to do their questions for them. So then we're going to go to Q&A. So once again, if you have a question, please drop it into the Q&A area, not into the chat, and from there, we'll be pulling the questions out and be doing the discussion from there. Um, let me just see with that housekeeping behind us. We're ready to welcome Shelby to the stage. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me. It is so nice to have you here. I feel like we're old friends. We only met 15 minutes ago. You know, this is great. I always say book people are literally the best people. So, you know, that, that happens a lot. <laughs> that happens a lot. And, you know, you just sit down and you pick up mid-sentence. You notice how you barely say I'm hello. And then it's like, let me tell you what I'm reading. And let me tell you why I loved it. And it's just the way the conversation goes. Absolutely. So I have to start with where did the idea of Marcellus come from? I mean, did you see an octopus in a store? Did you see that? What, where was this from? I'm trying to imagine an octopus in a store. That would be kind of like, that could be like a dark sci-fi book. Um, no, you know, I've answered that question so many times that I, I kind of always am tempted to come up with a better origin story. <laughs> um, because the truth is it came from like a YouTube video. Um, you know, I was wasted. This is many, many years ago, um, when I was uh, just starting out trying to write fiction, um, I am a self-taught writer. I didn't go to school for this or have any real formal training in it, um, but I was at sort of a crossroads of my career and I was taking a little time off. Um, I was a, a, a trailing spouse for many years, um, so to speak. You know, my husband had moved around for his various grad school job opportunities. And uh, so we had moved to a new city and I said, you know what? 
if I do this move, I'm going to just take some time and um, figure out what I want to do. Cause I was in a job that didn't really, it was like, I did a lot of spreadsheets <laughs> and spreadsheets do not feed my soul. It turns out. Um, so I was just attempting to write fiction and sort of uh, trying to take inspiration for characters from the world around me. I was doing a lot of eavesdropping in coffee shops. I would sit there with my laptop and, um, you know, listen to, this was sort of before everyone had AirPods and, and yep. earbuds in. So I, I was listening to a lot of like phone conversations, you know, listening to one side of it, trying to imagine what's happening on the other side or listening to the whole thing if someone was on speaker. Basically just trying to figure out you know, I want to write fiction, but I don't really know what to write about. So I'm just going to try to make observations and come up with stories from these little seeds of things in the world around me. And one of those seeds came one day when I was just wasting time on my laptop. Um, and somehow I got sucked into this algorithm on YouTube of naughty octopuses. <laughs> and it is, I mean, I think it's even better now, but you know, again, this was several years ago. So many videos out there of octopuses in captivity, causing trouble, uh, escaping their tanks, you know, just like shenanigans. And I found it really, really funny. I remember watching uh, one video, I think it was the Seattle Aquarium, and this octopus was just determined to escape and was not going to be put back in, like people were literally trying to shove him back over the top of his tank, and he was just not going to accept that. Um, you know, there was a real determination there that I found kind of inspiring, honestly. And I just remember thinking to myself that that would be a really fun, like, voice to write, that that would be a fun character to create, you know, if you could give a voice to the, um, just the, the conundrum that I think a lot of really intelligent animals that live in captivity find themselves in, you know, the boredom, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the, the stuckness, really. And so, you know, I kind of swept it to the back of my brain with all the other little crumbs of ideas that I had been collecting at this period in my life. And uh, a little while after that, I took uh, my first ever writing class, <laughs> which was a continuing education class. I'm going to put in my plug for continuing education classes. I think they're awesome. Um, you know, anyone can sign up. Uh, this one in particular that I did was at Emory University in Atlanta. That's where I was living at the time. Uh, but they have them at all sorts of um, community colleges, colleges, universities, like even a lot of libraries have these sort of um, lifelong learner classes or just community critique groups where you can sign up for usually a very low fee and no, you know, no admissions, no credit, just, you know, people are there because they want to to expand on this hobby and learn to be better writers. Um, so I'm in this class and I'm kind of nervous because it's, you know, the first time I've ever really done anything like this. And we got a writing prompt to write from an unusual point of view. Ooh. And I thought, well, I think someone else in the class wrote from like the perspective of the refrigerator. Like it was just people were all over the place. But my mind went to uh, a captive octopus, um, specifically a giant Pacific octopus, because they those were the ones that had featured so prominently uh, in these YouTube videos that I had watched. And so I wrote this little thing. I did it. It was on a piece of notebook paper because this was like the dark ages. Um, you know, I don't, I, I must have had a laptop at that time, but it was definitely a time when computers were still on our, on our desks sometimes. Um, and I shared it with the instructor and I remember she kind of pulled me aside and said, Hey, I think this is actually really good. Like, do you have any more of this? Like I find it entertaining and I want to read more. And, um, 
that was really the first time anyone had had complimented my writing like that. <laughs> Certainly my fiction writing. And it was just, it had a, such an impact on me. Um, I think back and then I've had a lot of opportunities to reflect back on that moment now, you know, doing a lot of these types of events. I don't think I would be sitting here if she hadn't said that to me, you know? Um, a little kernel of a story. Have you yeah. been in touch with her since then? We send each other. We, she, she's, she's an older lady. I think she was probably in her late seventies or well, probably, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe seventies or maybe early eighties at the time. And so she's like definitely in her eighties now. Um, and so we, we correspond via mail, which is really oh, fun. I love it. Well, she'll email. We email once in a while, but like every year, a nice Christmas card, a nice letter updating. Um, and that's always really nice. Yeah. She, uh, you know, I, I always just think, you know, now that I am sometimes in a position to give feedback to other aspiring authors or talk to people who want to become writers and read their work, it's just like always give the compliment, right? Like, yes. even if it means kind of you think it's just throwaway, oh, hey, I really liked that. I want to read more. Like, you never know that it might really, really matter to that person in that moment. And, you know, it changed my life. So here I am. Here's the, here's, here's what happened there. You know, I was thinking, we're living in Georgia. Did you go to the Georgia Aquarium? Did you spend a lot of time there? Because a my lot of time down there. <laughs> and it's the one time I'd ever gone to an aquarium where my kids weren't little, they were older. So instead of me like going, look at the octopus, look at this, I was actually able to enjoy and just look at everything. And it's just an amazing place, isn't it? It is. Well, I'm going to say, they must have been old enough that you weren't worried about losing them in the crowd because that's exactly. always my experience. <laughs> yeah, no, I, um, you know, that was sort of my first stop when I, you know, thought maybe I will write more of this. I don't think I was really thinking about it as a novel at that point, mm -hmm. but just, you know, more of these exercises, create a character, you know, I don't know, write, write a book full of an octopus giving his sort of hot takes on things like I don't know. I didn't think anyone would want to read that, but I think maybe some people would. I think a lot of people actually would. Um, I just love the way he's so sharp. He's so savvy. The way yeah. if, if it's open this much, he's out. If he's on the prowl, he's doing his thing. I just absolutely loved it. I I don't know. It, I just felt that from where you were headed, like, you know, at the very, very beginning, we immediately saw this, this octopus was smart, but we also saw a relationship between him and Tova. And I thought, did she was she the second character? Did you know her right away, or did she come later on? She was the second character. She she uh -huh. is probably the maybe, gosh maybe the only other character besides Marcellus who was sort of there from the you know the beginning at least the beginning of when I thought I'm going to try to write a novel out of this and not just have it be like this octopus collection <laughs> of of little shorts. Yeah, um, I remember actually being at the Georgia Aquarium. And at the Georgia Aquarium, like a lot of other aquariums, they have the big tank that has all of the um, things kind of together in it. Yeah. Um, and, and the fictional version of that in my book is just like a circle. Um, and that's how it was in the aquarium that I grew up with, that I sort of based that fictional aquarium on. I think the one at the Georgia Aquarium is bigger because they've got all the places you can walk underneath of it and it's right. a little bit more complicated. Around it and things like yeah. that. But um, even even then you can still like, certain individuals in that tank, whether it's a sea turtle or a stingray or a, sh a shark or a school of fish, they follow these very predictable paths. Mm -hmm. So you can almost set your watch to, you know, the sea turtle coming around every four and a half minutes or whatever it is. And I remember just kind of observing that. And, you know, it, again, I was mostly there to observe the octopus. Um, although I will say, Georgia Aquarium on a Saturday afternoon, you get to observe a lot of people too. <laughs> 
<laughs> that is a exactly. that is a cross section of humanity right there. People um, waving at the fish, waving at the like they're going to wave back. It's very very funny to see how people relate. Yeah, and, and I do. I mean, my kids do that. I do that. Like, of course, of course. It's funny. So many of the things that Marcellus sort of mocks people for doing in the book, like, oh, you know, hey, hey, he's right back there, that guy. It's like I, I do that every time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember watching this um, this tank full of all of this diversity of marine life mm-hmm. that was sort of just doing circles, doing laps, twenty four hours a day. I assume I don't know what they do at night, but certainly during the day when people are there. It is just a a circle. And it kind of got me thinking a little bit about this idea of stuckness and of routines. And when does a routine become a rut? Like when does, you know, to be honest, like it's the Georgia Aquarium is very cool. And it's an organization that I have supported personally over the years. But there is something, attention in seeing these animals just kind of in this rut, really. And it started got me started thinking about like our human ruts that we get in and the ways that we get stuck. And it really made me think of my grandmother who at the time, um, you know, she would have been in probably her eighties and her husband had passed away several years before she was still living on her own in her house. Um, I actually grew up in the house next door. So I knew her house very well. And uh, I was an only child. So I spent a lot of time with her. She was sort of my babysitter when my mom was working and I just remember her having this fairly rigid um, approach to routines and, and keeping busy. She was a very, very sweet woman, very loving, always had a plate of cookies, but you know, she was, she was kind of closed off emotionally. Like she was Swedish. She was from Sweden, like Tova in the book. And she would, it's like, okay, Monday, it's Monday. We're going to do the baseboards. Um, it's Wednesday. We're going to do the linens. Like she would wash the sheets on her guest bed even if no one had slept in the guest bed since the wow. previous Wednesday, it was just like she had this routine that it was really important for her to keep. I remember asking her why she would do that because it made no sense to me as a kid. It still makes no sense to me now. Um, and she would say it's something to do. Mm-hmm. And you know, at the time as a kid, I didn't think much of that. But you know, now as an adult, I think that there's a lot in that little sentence, and that's something that Tova says in the book as well that she feels she sort of has to keep busy. Um, Staying busy to her is very important. And, you know, as an adult thinking back on, you know, my grandmother's life when I was a kid and and was close to her, you know, I kind of look back and wonder, well, what was she running from? Like what, um, you know, why couldn't she sit down and relax? Like what was going on under the surface? And I never really had a chance to know, even though we were very close she did have this shell around her, you know, the sort of typical Scandinavian stoicism where you put your head down and you work and you don't really air your problems to other people. She really, I think, had a fear of being a burden on people, um, you know, which is another thing that Toba grapples with in the book. So I took a lot of my grandmother uh, and put it into that Tova character. And, um, and I sort of knew that the friendship between Tova and Marcellus was going to be the main thrust of the book that they were going to find a way to sort of unlock each other mm-hmm. and, um, you know, and unlock possibilities really, you know, Marcellus in the, that first chapter, that first opening couple of pages is very resigned. Yes. Like he's depressed. I don't know if an octopus can be depressed. Um, but if they can, he is, you know, he is just sort of resigned that life is never going to get better. 
Um, you know, and Tova kind of, it's not as extreme, but is also a little bit in that mindset too. And so I knew that they were going to help each other break out of that, break out of going around that sea turtle circle every four and a half minutes and find a different way to live. Yeah. And it's also, he's on day 1066. He's on, he knows he doesn't have much more time. And he's thinking of that. He's doing the math in his head the whole time too. It's, this is, I don't know how much longer I've got. I don't know much. And look what I've been doing. What did I do with my life? And I feel like the two of them are assessing what did they both do with their lives at the same time. And he's realizing he's got the opportunity to do something really big, but he has to have the opportunity to make that all come together. And he'll feel good if that happens. So yeah, you know, it's the first time that I think he's really cared about something, you know? Um he's he has, yeah. he's been writing writing hash marks on the wall for the last, you know, four years. Yeah. It's like what's gonna happen now. So who was next after those two? Who came in Oh gosh, are we going in chronological order? Okay. Well, let's go. Um, <laughs> I think I think next was Ethan, uh, because I remember very very early on I wrote the scene um, where Tova was at the grocery store and uh, we encounter Ethan for the first time. It's not her first. It's not Tova's first time encountering him, of course, but it's the reader's first time. And um, Ethan, as a character, actually came from a, a shorter piece of fiction that I had written, uh, and so I sort of um, I do that a lot actually. Uh, when I'm writing, you know, flash fiction or short stories, those stories themselves may not ever come out of the desk drawer and get published, but I use them as material. So I can say, hey, I really liked that character and I can see them fitting in this other story. Uh, I almost think of them as like a, a cast, you know, and I can yeah, just sort of yeah. borrow them and, uh, you know, assign them whatever role I think they fit. And so that was the case with Ethan. I brought him out from the short story that he, along with his backstory and... I just, a lot of times when I'm stuck writing, I think about uh, taking two of my characters and just putting them in like a mildly frustrating situation together and mm -hmm. seeing what happens. And so that was sort of how that grocery scene came about. And then I was like, okay, well, I could actually see there, there might be a little bit of a, a mini romance here or a, at least a friendship and, you know, realizing that that would be a part of the story as well. Um, had a lot of critique partners at the time that wrote romance and, and romantic comedy. So I think they definitely had an influence on me there, which was a great thing. And it's great because it's two older people and the way the two older people are going to come together. I thought that that was, but she's missing his signs and he's missing signs from her. And I thought that was like kind of the best part because a lot of people are doing this. Did yeah. anybody show up real late in the game as you were writing or did anybody come out? Like, was there a character that you uh, had a lot more written about and then it went, that's not going to work. Yeah, so so this is the spoiler. Uh, I know that we disclaimed that at the beginning. Um, I actually had several scenes that were written from uh, Cameron's mother's perspective that were in the mm -hmm. original manuscript that I wrote. And um, we took them out. I think it was my agent's suggestion to take them out. And, and she was right. Uh, it just didn't really, it was kind of jarring, I think, to go. And they were all kind of toward the end. Right. Um, so it's a little bit jarring to go from, you know, you sort of understand the pattern of the points of view and then you just change it and add someone else in, um, you know, and also it just kind of, you know, you have this mystery that is unfolding throughout the whole story. And, you know, I, I don't necessarily plot my books out beat by beat. I sort of um, figure it out as I go, at least on the first draft. And so I'm getting toward the end and I'm realizing I don't actually have a good way of wrapping this up. And so <laughs> my bringing her in was basically handing her the microphone and letting her tell you what happened. I was like, that's not, you know, that doesn't feel kind of earned or natural. Um, 
so we took her out and found out a different way to sort of resolve the uh, um, unanswered questions at that point. Uh, but I liked those scenes a lot. They're still sitting on my computer. Um, I don't, they're pretty short, but I don't know if I'll do anything with them ever. You know, I always think that authors could put those on their website and say, here, this is like what you didn't get. And it wouldn't have enhanced the story, but just know this is where I was going with her. This is how I was, you know, going with this. And I think that it's like, as you're writing the story together, you sometimes say, this can go out. I don't need this. I don't need this page. I don't need this because I've already told that part of the story. And now I'm just oh, absolutely. It. Right. I, and I am a, I am an overwriter when I draft. I, I sometimes, again, this is on a first draft. Um, I have a tendency to kind of beat you over the head with, with information. I'm like, okay, I really want to make sure that you know that this, this, and this, um, you know, and those are all things that I, I think I've gotten decent at sort of self-correcting them, uh, you know, before I actually let anyone else look at it. But then my editor at Echo was also really great about helping me just kind of pare it back and um, leave, um, give the reader some credit really um, yeah. as far as figuring out what people might be feeling or thinking or, or what might be going on. But there were so many parts which just came together so fluidly and so perfectly. That was, you know, a wonderful time about it. I have one more question, but I'm, I'm going to go to the audience um, or go to one of our reader questions. Um, I love the chapter titles throughout the book. Were those there from the beginning? Because they're so clever. And were you jotting those in and then did you have to write more later or what happened with those? Oh, yeah. Well, it's kind of just what you said. Uh, I write in a program called Scrivener. Mm -hmm. uh, which you might be familiar with. Uh, for anyone who is not familiar with it, it is very similar to like Word or Google Documents, except that it allows you to break um, break your scenes or your chapters into these chunks. Uh, and they kind of sit like, it looks like a file menu on the side of the screen. And then you can drag and drop to move things around. And it just, it's like you put your things in little packets. It just helps it, you know, you can find things faster. Uh, I, I can't imagine writing a novel without it. But um I would use, you can name those little files that are on the side of the screen. And I would name them these things when I was trying to just organize them. And that's how the chapter names first came about. Um, when it came time to actually, you know, the, the Scrivener has a function where it just um, collects the whole thing into a draft that's in manuscript format. And it brings those in. And I was like, huh, I wonder if those could be chapter titles. And so, you know, I had to massage them a little bit. And there were a few that I didn't have good ones for that I had to go figure out what they could be. Um, but yeah, I, I, I thought they were kind of fun. Um, I remember having a conversation with my editor, you know, do we keep these in? Do we take them out? Uh, and I think it was a pretty easy decision. We both agreed that we should keep them in. They, they added something. It also adds some humor. It'll add some humor. And like, <laughs> how is this going to go? And I think it'd be fun if you're in a book group to go back and say, which were your favorites, like your favorites of the words and how did it tie in? I think it'd be like maybe for an interesting discussion. I also think it's fun when I'm reading a book that has chapter titles. It's almost like there's a little Easter egg yes. in every single chapter. You're figuring out, you know, that title made no sense. How is it going to relate? And you, when you find it, it's that little bit of, uh, you know, I don't know. It's like, a, what do they call it? Um, it's a reward. When, 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 you, when you click the button, yeah, you get the, the endorphins from it. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> it's oh, a reward. I got it. I'm so smart now. And I was yeah. like completely fed up for you, but you think you're so bright, you know? <laughs> one of our longtime Bocacino Live book group participants, Debbie Moore, is going to join us. I think Debbie's been on every one of the events that we've done like this. And I think she's joining us from South Carolina. Sometimes she's in upstate New York, and I'm betting she's in South Carolina. Am I correct? Yep. Hi, Debbie. Hi. I um, love South Carolina. <laughs> Yeah, it's a it's a beautiful state, and it's a lot warmer than um, Central New York. Probably so. <laughs> um, 
I, I loved your book, first of all. I love all the storylines. Why did you decide to have Marcellus narrate the story? Well, I think um, he, you know, when I decided to make this a novel and not just, like I said, sort of a collection of short stories or anecdotes or, you know, little uh, vignettes, um, I don't know if I actually made a conscious decision to do this, but very quickly after I added the human characters in, I realized he was sort of taking a back seat. Um, not that he, I mean, he is larger than life. He is, you know, the defining character of the story. He is everyone's favorite character, including mine. <laughs> but his actual number of pages in the book is relatively small. Um, he truly is sort of this offstage, as you said, narrator, you know, and he is a character and he has his own character arc. Um, but he really does sort of take the role of having this, this kind of voiceover that comes in every so often to just help the reader kind of take a step back. Let's assess what's going on. I'm going to hopefully make you laugh and then give you a little tidbit of information, <laughs> um, to move the story forward. Uh, I actually had a lot of octopus scenes that didn't, uh, check all those boxes. So, you know, it might've been, uh, Marcellus is ranting about something he's ranting about like a TV show. And I'm like, this is really funny. But my editor is is saying, hey, you know, this doesn't actually move the story forward. You know, maybe we should cut it or, or consolidate it with something else or just make sure that every single one of these chapters has a really um, clearly defined sort of purpose and is using Marcellus to, to his, um, his best purpose, which is to be able to get information to the reader that the human characters, as is typical of humans, Marcellus would say, are too kind of dull to figure out themselves. Um, I love the two storylines of Tova and Cameron and how they come together in the aquarium. Did you write them separately? And did you always intend to have two storylines? Yeah, um, I, I always intended for it to be a, a, a dual narrative between the two of them. I I think I didn't really write them separately. I think I kind of went back and forth while I was writing, um, although I ended up moving a lot of things around uh, when I was editing. But with Cameron, um, he was the one character that I tried on a lot of different Camerons before I found one that fit. Uh, at one point I had him being much younger, like a teenager. Wow. And of course that not only affected, and I think in that version, Tova was also older, about 10 years older mm -hmm. than she ended up in the book. Um, so there was a, I think he was a, a great grandchild and said so there was a different, um, just to make the, the generations fit, it was laid out a little bit differently. Um, so that was very different. And then also with Cameron, you know, I, I wanted him to be, to be this kind of frustrating character. He's doing all these immature things. He needs to grow up. Um, but when you're 14, that's expected, you know, there, there's not as much possibility of a character arc because this person, you know, if you're a 14 year old boy and you're acting like a 14 year old boy, you know, there's not really a lot of room for growth. I remember having a conversation with my critique partner and we said, well, what if we just aged him up, like made him 30 instead of a teenager, he is a 30 year old man who was trapped in a teenager's frame of mind. And then it was like a light bulb went off. I was like, okay, so I can start him off there. And then that's his journey is really learning to grow up. Uh, and that worked so much better. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I sort of uh, fumbled with that around yep. for a little while before I found the, the way to make it fit. And he, and he was so different than Tova. Yeah. You know, Tova, like we talked about, you know, she had a routine and Cameron had anything but a routine. 
Yeah. Yes. Someone in the chat um, is saying, I know a few Camerons. Yeah. And that is exactly, I say that so often. I'm like, everyone has known this person in their life where you just kind of want to shake them. Um, yeah. A lot of people have, a lot of us have dated that guy. You know, it's just like, he's, he's around. Yeah. <laughs> um, I love the title of your book, Incredibly Bright Creatures. And when I got to the end of your story, I wasn't really sure who you were talking about as their incredibly bright creature. Was it Marcellus? Was it Tova? Was it both of them? Oh, I think it's um, it's both. Yeah, for sure. You know, and also by extension, you know, Marcellus has this very, very dim view of humanity um, at the start of the book. And I think, you know, here's a spoiler. Uh, at the end of the book, he he says humans can occasionally be remarkably bright creatures. So he hasn't done like a full 180 on it. Uh, and I don't think he ever would. He's still going to be frustrated by humans, you know, 95% of the time, although he's sort of free of them by that point. But um, I don't know. I guess, I, you know, I, I just like that it gave a little bit of a message of hope about humanity. Um, I do think that we can be pretty terrible creatures a lot of the time. Um, you know, we are terrible creatures for this planet in a lot of ways. Um, we are terrible to each other. We, you know, we fight wars and we fight online. And, um, you know, you could spend a lot of time sort of going down the path of thinking like, you know, people are just garbage. Um, but I don't think that's actually true. And I, I, I guess I thought if Marcellus can kind of come around and have hope about humanity, then that really says something about humanity. And, you know, it's through his friendship with Tova. I mean, Tova is the, is his entry into that, to seeing that he, his assumptions about humans were not always correct. Um, yeah, it sort of goes into my my last question. You know, Tova was so disheartened after her husband died, especially because she never knew what happened to her son. And she came to have a special bond with Cameron and with Marcellus. Um, do you think it's that ability to create those bonds that makes us incredibly bright creatures? So I think one of the most powerful things that a human can do is be vulnerable. And I think that that's really, really hard for a lot of people. And I feel like vulnerability is almost like a buzzword nowadays in this kind of, you know, it's like a, a pop psychology type thing um, that it wasn't so much in the, when, you know, back when I was kind of drafting this and coming up with it. And, you know, when I was right, I don't think I had these ideas fully formed in my head when I was creating the characters. I was just looking at like my grandmother and myself and, you know, the, the Camerons that I had known in my life and thinking, gosh, like what is wrong with us? Like, you know, what do we need to do better in order to have more meaningful connections and overcome loneliness and, you know, just be better human beings for ourselves and for each other. And I think so much of that comes down to being able to allow yourself to be vulnerable to those around you, which is something that both Tova and Cameron struggle with. You know, Tova just literally is closed off. She has these friends mm -hmm. of hers, the Nitwits, which my grandmother actually had a group called the Nitwits. I don't, I don't think any of them are still alive, but um, uh, they were exactly like they were in the book. It was just, it was, they were so fun. Um, you know, but they don't really know her despite spending all of this time with her. Uh, she, because she won't let them in. You know, it's not for lack of trying on their part. They want to know her, but she sort of keeps everyone at arm's mm -hmm. length. Um, Cameron kind of does the same thing. Anytime anyone, you know, gives him an opportunity or a compliment, he yeah. just kind of um, brushes it off with a snarky joke. Uh, he really is afraid to try. 
because trying might mean that you fail. And I think that's something that a lot of people experience throughout their lives, but, you know, maybe particularly in that phase when you're sort of in your twenties and you're trying to figure out, you know, what you want to do with your life and, um, your friends are off having successful careers or starting families and you're not, uh, can be a particularly sort of painful time in that way. Uh, but yeah, I think it really comes down to just being able to be open and vulnerable and resist that urge that, I mean, I have the same urge too, to just, you know, if anything gets too close, my first instinct is um, close off, you know, cutting down the hatches. <laughs> um, and it's not healthy. You know, I guess right. I, I, am, I very much am my, my grandmother's, um, you know, relation in that way. I think that it kind of runs through my whole yeah. family. So um, yeah, I think really it's, 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 it's vulnerability. Well, um, thanks so much for writing this book. It oh, was incredible. <laughs> I have probably given it to more people than I've ever given a book before from the age of 14 to my granddaughter, to a friend who's in her late seventies. And it doesn't matter what age you are. I think the, the book kind of resonates with everybody. So thank you. That's so amazing to hear. Thank you. That's what I love about our readers is not only do they read, but they share. And a lot of them are always saying, I'm going to my book group and I'm going to have everyone go read this book. And I love moments like that. And exactly what Debbie's saying is I gave this book to a lot of people. And it's because it meant, you know, that much, you know, meant that much to her. So thanks, Debbie. As always, it's great to see you. <laughs> so more um, Marge Klein from Isla Mirada, Florida, place I love, said, I love this book. It was such a heartwarming story. She also shared that the voice actors on the audiobook are so engaging. So let's talk about the audio, which is narrated by Marin Ireland and Michael Yuri. What have you heard from readers about the audio? Because I was doing some reading online and people just seem to love it. Yeah, um, I think I've heard from one person who didn't like the narration of the audio. One person out of talking to literally thousands of people about it at this point. I mean, it has been universally loved. Uh, I was not really an audiobook person before going through this whole process as an author and learning about, you know, when when we started working on the audiobook, HarperCollins has a team of people who this is what they do and they're really good at it. They sent over a list of ideas and said, hey, just listen to samples of these folks and just let us know which ones are your favorites and we will go contact them first in that order and see you know, if they're available and willing to come on board. And Michael Yuri was my first choice. Uh, Marin Ireland was my first choice. I got very, very lucky. Uh, if you would have told me, you know, when I was writing that email to Harper Audio that they both, I mean, because Michael Yuri is like a, a pretty famous actor and <laughs> Marin right. Ireland is a rock star in the audiobook world. It right. sort of felt like I was, you know, kind of shooting for the moon. I'm like, um, there's, there's no way that these people are going to agree to do this, but they did. And the audio is just amazing. It has really... Um, kind of turned me into an audiobook person. I listen to a lot more audiobooks now than I did before. But yeah, um, Michael Yuri, especially with Marcellus's voice, is just, it's just exactly how I pictured it. It's so awesome. Um, the the sample that I listened to when I was in this process of, you know, we were trying to decide who to approach. Um, the sample was Stephen Rowley's Lily and the Octopus, oh, uh, which came out a few years ago. It's a very in some ways it's a very different book but in some ways it's very similar mm -hmm. um it's a very humorous funny book about a very very difficult subject which is you know the death of his pet in this case and the octopus is the metaphorical cancer that his pet is dealing with um 
but it's very, it's like laugh out loud funny. And uh, Michael Urie did a fantastic job with it. And I was just like, oh, I can so picture this being Marcellus. And I have had the chance to to meet Stephen a couple of times since then. And we joke now that we are typecasting Michael Urie as an octopus because we've made him do this twice. <laughs> this is like absolutely perfect. We now know what we're going to do with him. It's so funny. <laughs> you know, it, audio has taken off so, so quickly over the last couple of years. And I keep joking that it used to be when authors was like their rights to Finland, like they weren't that big. It didn't matter that much. And then audio became something that really did matter. What was going to happen? Who was going to be the performer? Who was, how was it going to be um, pulled together? What were going to be some of the other outtakes that would be on it or whatever became a much bigger deal. And I think that listeners are becoming, it used to be, oh, you're only listening to the book that's not reading. And it's not true anymore. It's not, never was true. But now even more so, it gives people a chance to read a lot more because you're able to listen. So it'll be, somebody's asking in the chat, was the book you just mentioned? So if you could just do, um, just share that one more time. Oh yeah. Um, It is called Lily and the Octopus. The author is Stephen Rowley, uh, R-O-W-L-E-Y. He just, his most recent book, Lily was his first novel, I think. Um, His most recent book was The Celebrants, which just came out last summer, um, which was also a read with Jenna Pick. um, So that was fun to to be in that club with him also. Um, he's just a fantastic writer. He is so, he write like, you know, and I feel like we're kind of in the same club of writing these books that take on, you know, death and grief and sickness and um, just these really hard subjects, but try to make them funny and feel good rather than, you know, dark and depressing. Engaging, engaging, engage the person so that you can be able to have a conversation. But you can't have if it's always sad. If it's always no. sad, you can't have the conversation. You know, Mary Barker's got a couple of questions. The first is, do you or have you ever had a unique pet? Because I think when you're writing about octopus, people assume you must have had some great pet when you were younger. I, uh, well, I've always had cats, which is not unique, but um, I'm still a cat person. I still have cats. Uh, I, when I was a, probably started when I was like a preteen and went into teenhood, I had a bed, bedroom full of reptiles. <laughs> Um, which which started out as just one. I think I wanted a snake as a pet originally. And my mom said, no, no snakes. She would not have that in the house. Uh, but she compromised on a lizard. And I got this little pair of um, desert swifts. Uh, and they were so cute and so personable. And I could pick them up and stroke their little heads. And, uh, you know, lizards don't live very long. So those guys passed. And I got a, you know, a replacement. And then I was like, well, you know, you're already, you're already buying the crickets. You might as well have, I think at one point I had seven or eight tanks of reptiles in my bedroom. And, you know, I, like I was a pretty normal kid in a way. And I think this surprised some of my friends. It certainly I think, surprised, like, you know, I brought over a guy that I was trying to date and he's like, what is this? There are like grow lights in your, in your bedroom. Like we're making out to the soundtrack of crickets chirping. Like, yes, yes, we are. <laughs> I remember one time one of the kids I babysat for, his parents were going away and he couldn't leave his iguana. So I said, I'll come and stay with him. And then I realized the iguana had to eat a live mouse. And I was just like, mm-hmm. I am going to die like right here. And he goes, no, I'll take care of it. It's okay. And I was like, that's good because it's not on my list, you know? Yeah. Well, they but then they have to do it like once a week. Usually it's like, it's a gross task, but it's not. Maybe every day. I was there, you know, yeah. Yeah. I got combat pay for that. Mary also wants to know, do you think that animals are smarter that we as humans give them credit for, that your cats are smart? Oh, I think, I mean, and I think this is a very common thing. You know, I, my cats in particular are not particularly smart in the way of like 
you know, learning tricks or learning how the world around them physically works. They're pretty, uh, pretty basic in that way, but I think they are incredibly intuitive. Um, I was just in, uh, I was in um, Mississippi for a book event. And as part of that in Tupelo, which was a great little town, we did an event at the high school in the morning before the main event in the evening at the library. And the, the, the students, I think they were all, it was all, they were freshmen, sophomores, juniors, seniors. Um, the art students had done uh, an art like challenge in conjunction with, you know, reading remarkable art features and having this author talk. And I don't remember exactly what the, the prompt was, but it was something about, you know, human animal connections. And almost every single one of these art pieces, which were amazing, like blew me away the talent that these kids had artistically, but just also emotionally. You know, there was one that was like, here, you drew a picture of, here's my, my kitten who comes and somehow knows when I'm sad and um. puts, puts her paw on me. I mean, I think that animals really do uh, are able to pick up on that. And, and certainly that is true for my cats, even though they are, you know, we sometimes call them like Tweedledee and Tweedledum or <laughs> because they're just like, they're, they're siblings. They, we, we joke that they share, like they share a brain cell. <laughs> um, but when it comes to knowing when someone's upset or knowing when something is off in the emotional energy in the household, like they are right there and right on it. So, you know, I, I do think that they can do more than we give them credit for in that way. Um, yeah. Oh, someone in the, in the uh, chat is mentioning like service dogs, which are a great, I mean, that's just, yeah. they can do things that humans can't do. I mean, they are smarter than us in many ways. Yeah. And they're intuiting. This is what's going to happen. This yeah. is gonna, when you start packing, do the cats have any, like, if you're going on a trip, do the cats react or like, it's okay. She's going. One does. Mm -hmm. The other one, <laughs> we joke that the one is using the brain cell at that time. Because she she knows what's going on. The other one is just kind of off in his own world. Um, yeah, so funny. I have had cats that are the opposite of that, though. We had a cat once that had been a um, taken from a like a feral colony, but he was very friendly, uh, friendliest cat I've ever met. But he had spent a lot of his life on the streets before he was pulled in and adopted out. And that cat was, I mean, he was sharp. Like he he knew things. <laughs> He was, he was on top of things. He knew yeah. what was going on. He knew what was going on. She's also saying that um, your ending really made the book to give Marcellus his freedom after years in the tank. I didn't see that ending coming, but it put a smile on my face. Was it something you always had in mind? Uh, it, so I knew when I set out to, even when I set out to write like that first little vignette that became the first page of the book that said day, whatever, whatever of my captivity, think I had in my mind day one of my freedom that you know even this little story before it was even a story I knew that I wanted to write that sentence and certainly when I set out to make it into a novel and expand it like I knew that Marcellus was going to get free I didn't know how it was going to happen I didn't even have any of the human characters really in place at that point but I knew that he was going to find a way out and I actually tried a few different ways of of making that happen and mm -hmm. um you know, I'm, I'm glad that the the way that it ended up uh, worked for people because I, I tried a few different ways. <laughs> tried a different, a few different ways of what was going to go on. <laughs> it's like okay. I think I had the had the aquarium catching fire at one point because I think oh. somewhere in my head I was just like, you know, what would happen? And you got these things in the water, and um, right. but then I was like, oh, but then the power would go out. It's just it got really, really dark really fast because I think a lot, you know, that would be a sad, sad ending. Not good. Not good. For not Marcellus, but for 
Most everybody, everybody in the aquarium <laughs> who would not yeah. be a good moment. Um, Patricia Bull is from Macomb, Michigan. If I'm taking anybody's name in vain, I'm really sorry. <laughs> I'm trying to do this. Um, I read this book once by myself. I read it a second time with my book club. It was my favorite book of 2023. When people ask me for a book recommendation, I always tell him this book. This is always across the board. Marcellus is the perfect name for such a distinguished octopus. We wanted to know if Marcellus was created after someone the author knows. Was this, anything of him was like something that you were pulling in? We talked about this a little bit, but is there anything else we need to know? Yeah, so I think Marcellus has a couple different components to him that I have taken from like real life. Uh, and they're they're very opposite to me, which is kind of funny. Um, I think part of Marcellus is like this relative that I think a lot of us have. I certainly had a few versions of this in my family. Um, we would go, I have a big family on both sides. I'm, I'm, the, I'm an only child, but both of my parents had a lot of siblings. So there were a lot of cousins and aunts and uncles and we would go to, you know, holidays at a grandparent's house. And we all lived in really small houses, houses, a thousand square feet. And you've got 50 people crammed in there. You know, you're literally elbow to elbow. But then you look over and there's like the one uncle who's like has a a, a berth around him. It's like no one wants to get too close because he's going to tell you his opinion about something. It's just like <laughs> the delivering of sort of unsolicited opinions um, about often kind of trivial things. Uh, I, I feel like I brought a little bit of that to Marcellus. He's just, he's very much, you know, is up there kind of with his microphone, just thinking that everyone wants to hear everything that he has to say. Um, but, you know, in not in like a, in a bad way, just in a very um, sort of self-centered way, I guess. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and then the other aspect that I thought was really fun to bring into Marcellus, you know, you take, he's a curmudgeon, you know, like that kind of uncle or relative, there's always a curmudgeon cranky old man. Um, there's also a playfulness in him that I think really came from me having young children at the time that I was doing a lot of this drafting. I did a lot of the writing of this, probably about 70% of it during the first months of COVID. Mm -hmm. I was home full-time with my newly minted three-year-old uh, and five-year-old. The five-year-old was mostly fine. The three-year-old was a handful. Mm -hmm. um, and just being the recipient all day of the questions, the curiosity, the endless chains of but why. And, um, you know, there's a little bit of that in Marcellus. He just likes to kind of probe things that don't make sense. Right. And he's not going to accept an answer that um, doesn't, doesn't work for him, uh -huh. you know, and kind of pointing out the ways in which humans are often illogical or nonsensical, use language that doesn't make sense, use these weird turns of phrase that, you know, who knows where that came from? It doesn't make any sense. You know, a lot of that came directly from my toddler and his sort of curiosity. And, you know, I think at one point he was saying like, why, you know, why are adults so weird? It's like, well, you know, we kind of are, you're right. You know, that's very, that was a very Marcellus thing for him to say. <laughs> so. thing to say. I remember so, yeah. an essay you written, wrote for Lit Hub and he was asking you some questions and it was just like the way, like, what about this? What about that? What about the other thing? And it just becomes, this is what my story is. You know? yeah. Okay. He's, uh, he's eight now and he still does that. So yeah. question after question after yep. question. Um, she also says that even the cover is magnificent. And I was wondering if the author had any input as to what the cover would look like. And I'm going to grab this up here and hold it oh, up. Yeah, it's kind of behind me too. Yeah. Um, I love the cover and 
you know, to be honest, I, you know, being sort of friends and in writers groups with uh, mm -hmm. other authors who had gone on this journey and in traditional publishing, you know, as a lot of you probably know, you don't get full control over the cover. That's the publisher gets to decide that. And I had had some, some people I knew who had sort of been in a, a fight about it or, you know, had it not go away that they liked. So I remember stealing myself for, okay, this might be a point of contention. I might not love it. Mm -hmm. uh, and then it was just such a relief because I absolutely loved it. Even the first, you know, the first pass that they really sent us, I think the only thing that I really asked them to change was just some of the coloring, uh, just tweak it a little bit. But um, I think it's so fantastic. I love that they went with a literal cover. Mm -hmm. I think for a book like this that has kind of a wild premise, um, you know, I'm really glad that, you know, if you pick up this book and you open the first page and you're surprised that there's an octopus talking to you, you know, you shouldn't be surprised because there is an octopus on the cover. So it's exactly. like, you know, it's kind of helped um, not blindside readers with this unusual narrator that comes, you know, right from page one. Yeah. And what I also love too is so many of the pages inside are designed, the chapters going into, of course, we not be able to find something right now, but I will look. And there are sections where there's just a beautiful piece of artwork as you're going through. Yeah. And I was like, wow, this is just so special. And it makes the book. Here we go. Well, it's probably not going to show. I have yeah, a different just camera looks white. Today. Everybody, um, I'm really sorry. I have a different camera tonight and it's like taking a little getting a joke. There we go. Yeah, it's that kind of like grayscale, uh, yes. almost looks like a the page is uh, wet a little bit. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So there we like, it, I think that that also contributed to as you're going through, it's like, oh, I know where I am now in the book. I know where, and I think it was on mostly on the Marcellus pages. Am I correct? It's only on the Marcellus pages. Oh. Yeah. So that I think was a very clear, um, you know, not only because with Marcellus, not on, only are you shifting from a human point of view to an octopus point of view, you're shifting from a third person narrator to a first person narrator. Exactly. Right. Um, and that can be just as a reader in books where they don't do something to um, kind of uh, trigger your mental awareness of that, it can be very jarring. So I think they did a great job of of using the um, the artwork inside to to tell readers, okay, you know, here, uh, here mic microphone to the octopus now. <laughs> Here we go. Turning it over, turning it over. Courtney Rogers from North Reading, Massachusetts said, my book club is curious as to what is the symbolism with the Swedish horses in the book as characters? Yeah. Um, so I grew up in a Swedish family. I grew up with Dalla horses, which gosh, I don't have one here. I'm not in my normal house. If I were in my actual house, they would be all over the, the shelves behind me. The ones that are actually my great grandmothers that she brought over from Sweden. Uh, but they are this typical little red, um, typically they're red or orange, uh, decorated with uh, paint, hand-painted kind of um, just that Swedish looking kind of style. Uh, but yeah, I grew up playing with them. Um, they are very special to me because like I said, my grandmother had passed away before I, before I feel like I really got, you know, everything that I now wish I had out of that relationship. And these are, you know, her things from her family my kids, when they were little, would want to play with them. And I'd be like, no, go play with, boys. Go, go play with your My Little Ponies. These ones are important. Um, but yeah, they're, they just, you know, it's a, it's a thing that I think a lot of folks, if you've grown up in a, a Swedish household, you're just used to having these around the house and see, they're just a symbol of, of that culture. And uh, so, yeah, it just seemed very natural to me to like, you know, that these would be something that Tova would have. They would be special to her. 
um, probably the storyline where her son is playing with them and breaks one comes directly from my anxieties about that. <laughs> Having young kids who always wanted to play with them and I would look over and see them about to hurl it across the room and be like, no, no, don't touch that. Don't touch that. There were certain things you didn't play with. They were just display items. And it was yeah. the thing you to play with the most. It was the always. Thing yeah, always. Terry's going to join us now from Charleston, South Carolina. Hi, Shelby. Hey, Hi. I met you back in January at the Wild Oats book event um, yes. on Isle of Palm with William Kent Kruger, another oh my of my gosh. favorite authors. Wasn't that a wonderful weekend? Oh, oh my gosh. I'm so still riding fun. high from that. It was so, so fantastic. Well, it really was. And I, I went into it trying to figure out what you and Kent were going to talk about because <laughs> you don't write anything. And I couldn't. I could not figure it out. And it turned out to be charming. Um, well, I went into it fangirling because I had <laughs> never met him before. Oh. And was like, I can't believe I'm going to share a stage with WKK. Like, yeah. <laughs> I um, had met him several times because I'm from Minnesota. And he's been at my public library. So I knew about him. You, I wasn't so sure about. But the question I asked you that day that I have thought about a lot since then. I cried at the end of this book. And I asked you if you have thought about writing a sequel. And I'll, well, I'll let you answer it the way you answered it for me. Um, gosh, I don't remember exactly how I answered it. I feel like I, you know, my, my, my mindset on that honestly shifts a little bit day to day. It's something that I think would be hard for me to do right now. Um, it, it's hard for me to think about writing an octopus who's not Marcellus, mm -hmm. um, which, and this is, you know, a little bit of a spoiler sort of rules out a sequel um, because as far as we know, he has gone off into the ocean at the end of this. Um, but, you know, a prequel I think would be really fun. I have played around with that a little bit with the characters. I have a, 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 a a little bit of a, a logistical hurdle around like um, if you have young Marcellus in the ocean, like who is he talking to? Like who is he just what, you know, like is he, cause in the book he is like, he knows that he's in captivity and he's directly addressing humans. Would he have like, just how would that work? Um, but you know, I do like, I think the the book that I'm working on now and um, I'm sure that we'll get questions about that uh, does also feature were you in the discussion where we talked about then were you were you at the um uh the Dewey's Island event no I couldn't no get okay yeah I know that one filled up really fast but mm -hmm. uh, we also talked about it a little bit at that event and I talked a little bit about my my project I'm working on now which also includes an animal um it's not an animal narrator but it's an animal that provides like the impetus for mm. all of the human actions that happen in the book um, you know, kind of, I, I hope or think maybe in the same way that, you know, Marcellus is a book about an octopus that's not really about an octopus. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this is a book that where the action centers around this animal, but it's not at all about this animal. In fact, the animal doesn't even really appear on the page very rarely. Uh, so, you know, there's a lot of folks that um, if we were in all in a room together right now, all 500 of us, I would ask for a show of hands, how many people picked up this book because it has an octopus how many people picked it up in spite of the fact that it has an octopus you were had a reservation about that um 
And so I think it, you know, somehow I, you know, again, I, I kind of lucked into this. I wasn't really thinking about this when I was writing it, but it's, it managed to sort of appeal to both, both of those groups of people. And so I'm, I'm, I'm trying a similar thing with, with the animal character in this next book. Um, I kind of hope it scratches the same itch, but you know, I, I don't, not ruling out a, a, another Marcellus or another story that's set in, in Soul Bay at some point. And I, I do love it when authors take their characters and sort of peel them off. Um, you know, even, even a, a really, really minor side character, you know, you peel them off and put them in another book and you can kind of tell that the books take place in the same world and that's neat. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, you know, I, I'm playing around with it, but, um, but trying to also just, you know, broaden my writing and my focus, sure. you know, into other things, but there is definitely a Marcellus shaped hole in everything that I write now. <laughs> Um, he was such a fun character to write. He um, resonated so much with people that I think they are going to be big shoes to fill. And there are, I guess they're gloves, really, probably not shoes, but <laughs> there are eight of them, whatever they are. <laughs> well, I also think that there's a message in there that children might benefit from. Yeah. And oh. I, so I've been thinking about that question since I met you. How could she do this? Because your answer then was pretty much what you just said. Who would Marcellus talk to? And I thought, I wonder if it could be turned into a children's story with some of that same, those same themes about being open and vulnerable um, so that young people could benefit from how brilliant Marcellus really is. Oh, it's so important for children. And, you know, I have a boy and a girl. Um, and, you know, I think especially moms of boys to just, you know, instill in them from an early age that it's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to, you know, show your emotions. I remember the day that my son, he goes to a wonderful school, but on this particular day, one of his schoolmates, he had cried about something in class and had sort of said like, you know, like, God, Axel, you're like, you're always crying. And he said, that's because I have a lot to cry about. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, yeah, you know, you're, you think he was six or seven at the time. I'm like, you're fine, buddy. You know, don't, you don't yeah. need to, you don't need to pack it away. <laughs> well, thank you for a brilliant book. Um, I can't recommend it highly enough. Oh, it's thank you. Wonderful. It's so good to see you again. Thanks you for coming as well. And, and in January, are you going next year to Wild Dunes? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I would Absolutely. love to go. I would love to go sometime and be a, just be in the audience because that is but just a, a come on back to Charleston. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much, Terry. Thanks for being part of this evening. Yeah. I'm going to ask one more question and we'll go to audience questions. Connections and misconnections are a big part of this theme of the story. Do you chart those in advance or did it happen organically as you went? Because it was things like this will happen and then that will happen and... Uh, I do not chart them in advance. <laughs> I wish I could. And I'm actually trying to be a little bit better about that. And my, my, you know, my future writing projects, because I had no idea what I was doing when I wrote this book. I mean, at one point I literally Googled how to write a novel, which is just a not helpful thing to Google. <laughs> um, but I know a little bit more now and I do, I think I see more clearly sort of the the major beats and some of the plot things that need to happen at different times. But yeah, the, um, the, the, the connections and missed connections actually came about because of a, a big mistake that I had made in drafting. Mm. Um, at one point I was drafting this and I had, um, spoiler alert, 
I had Toba and Cameron meeting and realizing their relationship to one another pretty early on in the story, like maybe at about the 30, 30, 40% mark. And then I'm, you know, trying to write the rest of the story. And the whole thing is just them like fighting about cleaning. They had this very like adversarial relationship, which they still do a little bit in, in, in the current version, but you know, that, like I I mentioned earlier, I have a lot of critique partners that write romance. Mm -hmm. You know, this was an enemies to lovers situation. You know, that was their, that was their trope, even though they're, you know, it's not romantic love. That was what they were, um, the, the, the path that they were following and it wasn't working. And I remember chatting with my critique partner and trying to figure out, okay, why is this not working? Um, you know, let's just think out of the box. Even if I have to blow this thing up, I need to find a way for this to work. Um, and we thought of the idea of, okay, what if instead of being an enemies to lovers trope, it's this like missed connections, the one that got away trope. So, and you know, you see romance novels and movies and things like this, where you have two people that are just always going right past each other. Um, and you know, you're rooting for them to, to get together. And at the end they do. And so we said, oh yeah, they could realize who they are to each other at the very end instead. Of, and, and so the whole time they're together, they're forming this friendship, but they don't know. And, you know, you have to be careful writing something like that because it can very quickly become, I think, frustrating for the reader right. or seem incredibly unrealistic that these, you know, people would not realize this. And I was very aware of that when I was writing it and trying to, you know, avoid some of those pitfalls. Um, but it worked so much better and, you know, just allowed for that sweet moment at the end. Um, it allowed for Tova and Cameron to sort of each go off into their own worlds a little bit more and have their own arcs and develop their own storylines. Uh, and it wasn't just always so much about them, you know, being together and clashing. So yeah, it, it, you know, I think that tropes are fantastic. Uh, and I love, you know, particularly the romance tropes, like, you know, they kind of get a bad rap sometimes, but they're so helpful in thinking about how characters relate to one another, even in books that are not at all romance. Yeah, like where where did the story? Why is the story working? It's because it's the age old story of what happens with people. It's almost like, every story is an age old story. Yeah, just letting everybody doing this, you know. Okay, I think we're gonna go to questions from the audience. Tom, do you have our voice of God? Do you have questions for the from the audience? Yes, we do have some oh, good he, questions here. That sounds um, like the voice of God. <laughs> <laughs> voice of God is here, ready to ask some really good questions from our audience. Um, so. We have a, a first an, a question from an anonymous attendee. Why did you choose the Pacific Northwest as the setting? Oh, I don't think it was so much of a choice as it was just a uh, inevitability. So I grew up in the Pacific Northwest. I grew up in Tacoma, Washington. Uh, I haven't lived there full time since I was like 19. So, um, but I know it very well. I still have a, like, a, a lot of like a big family there. Uh, and we go back a lot. And there was a particular aquarium in Tacoma that I like to spend a lot of time at as a kid. And I think subconsciously, you know, we don't always think of these things as being really too important to us when we are, you know, children or, or growing up. But there are some things that are just sort of sticky like that in our brains. And I think this aquarium, I, I loved it so much. It was very much like the aquarium in the book. It was sort of dark damp, smelly, like not fancy cement walls that were always wet for some like unexplained reason. Uh, I think I, you know, that just kind of came to me when I thought about writing about a captive octopus. 
I also really loved the idea that Marcellus was just, you know, 20, 20 feet from home. Um, you know, he's, it, it really needed to be right there, I think. And I, and like I said, I knew really early on that I wanted him to get back to home. And so it needed to be simple it didn't require a ride in a refrigerated truck across the country. So yeah, just, it made sense. Um, uh, you know, like I said, I wrote a lot of this during COVID. Uh, I had planned a trip home, a, a big trip home with my children. Um, that was supposed to be the first week of March of 2020. Obviously that didn't happen. I think I hadn't been home in about a year at that point. It was really, really, really missing home. And I think writing this story was just kind of like a like a warm blanket. I could kind of disappear into this world that felt so familiar and comforting at a time when I couldn't physically go there or or see the people that I loved that were from there, except, you know, on a computer. We didn't we weren't even doing Zoom then though. I mean, it was like FaceTime. It was the dark ages. Right. <laughs> my husband said the other day because work from home never would have worked if zoom wasn't as far along as it was it Gosh. never would have worked you know it was really An incredible confluence of the technology being right there and available and free and easy uh and the pandemic hitting i mean yeah it would have been very different if it had happened five years earlier well we actually said to zoom at one point we wanted to do all these extra things like could you do this could you say they said we're just trying to keep the lights on. Like, we're just trying to get as many people watching as possible and not have everything drop. And I was like, okay, I really get it, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and then Nancy wants to know, why did you choose to write in the present tense? You know, that's a great question. Um, I remember going on uh, Twitter when I was sort of, I'm not on there anymore. I can't keep up with it. And even like threads, I'm just like, I can't keep yeah. up with it. Um, but at this time when I was, you know, looking to query my book, it felt very important to be on Twitter and be in the discourse and be in the writing community. And I remember coming across a Twitter thread about present tense and people just crapping all over it that they hated it and wouldn't. And it just kind of blew my mind because that's almost always the way that I write. It's just the way that the thoughts, you know, sometimes I think of um, writing as like, I'm just trying to conjure things from my brain and get them onto the screen. And it's almost a little bit, um, I don't fully understand the process that happens there. It almost feels like I have to get into a little bit of a zone and, and that's the way it comes out. Uh, I can, even in, in um, when I have written pieces that are in past tense, I, it usually kind of comes out of my brain in present tense and then I do that conversion before I, before I write it or when I edit it, uh, it's, I don't know, it's just a natural inclination, I guess. But um, a couple of my favorite, like Frederick Backman, uh, I think almost always writes in present tense, third person. Mm -hmm. And I, mm -hmm. you know, he's a writer that I read a lot and I've always admired his work and, and just the vibe that his work gives off. So I think it's actually becoming more common. I think it was a few years ago, a little bit more of a, 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 a radical decision. <laughs> now it's a little bit more common, but. Um, Debbie is curious if you have any background working with or living around sea life. Just the background of being a Pacific Northwest girl. Um, right. <laughs> yeah, I um, no, it's in the very beginning of this talk, I said, you know, I wish I could come up with a better origin story for Marcellus. And there definitely are times when I'm like giving a book talk and I'm like, this would be so much cooler if I were a marine biologist. <laughs> you know, just be like yes you know I have all of this experience I, I don't I'm I don't even scuba dive to be honest scuba diving 
terrifies me. Um, I will snorkel and and like dive a little bit, but the the scuba gear and the it kind of scares me. I I'm hoping to overcome that at some point, but um, but no, it's all just uh, really the the vibe of the the setting in the Northwest, and um, you know, it's very similar actually to like Charleston. I've been a lot of places that have a similar vibe where the water is just sort of always around you wherever you go, in a way that always doesn't make the most sense. Um, you know, in Chicago, where I live now, you've got Lake Michigan and and then you've got everything else. <laughs> uh, you know, in in places like, you know, the Barrier Islands on the East Coast or, you know, in certain parts of Florida, you know, certainly in the Northwest, you know, certain parts of, of the coast, even on California, you just like um, the water just kind of winds its way in and it's everywhere and it's disorienting. And I, you know, I think that was sort of the the vibe that I wanted to capture um, it did mean that I did a lot of research on giant Pacific octopuses in order to be able to to write Marcellus. Um, and I had a lot of help from folks who, um, some folks in my writing group who had experience in marine biology, who were able to read my my Marcellus sections and and set me straight on a few things, and then and then put me in touch with some other marine biologists who like actually do octopus rescue. And you know, this was during COVID. I'm like emailing them these completely random questions. And I'm just picturing some poor, like young person who got their marine biology degree and thought they were going to go, you know, be hands-on with all these animals. And now they're stuck in their living room because COVID. <laughs> and they're answering my octopus questions from an unknown author. Um, but yeah, I did have a lot of help with, with Marcellus to make sure that he was scientifically accurate. Mm-hmm. Thank you. <clears throat> Mary wants to know when you wrote about the octopus, did you know how short of a lifespan it had? When I like when I wrote the thing that I did in that um, continuing education class, I did not. Um, Mm -hmm. But I remember being shocked when I learned that it was as short as it is. And uh, the giant Pacific octopus is one of the biggest. I think it is the biggest species of octopus also has the longest or one of the longest lifespans of any octopus and you know a lot of even like the common octopuses like if you've seen my octopus teacher Mm -hmm. um that's a common octopus i think those guys are like two to three years i mean it's really really short um it it it's kind of amazing to me in a in a baffling way uh how an animal that is so intelligent like evolution has funneled so much intelligence for lack of a better way of putting it into these animals and yet you know they only live a few years it's kind of it's a little bit sad i also love the section marks that would be on her arm so she would like the next day she'd know she wasn't dreaming it it actually happened and they really connected i love that um an anonymous attendee says um tell us about ethan's t-shirt why did that happen Oh my gosh. Uh, okay, I'm going to talk about romance novels again here. Um, the uh, the addition of the scene, uh, and it's a scene where, spoiler alert, um, Tova, uh, Tova and Ethan sort of have this um, friendship slash budding romance that they are uh, trying to get together in spite of the fact that they're very different people. They have this connection. Um, and I remember one of my critique partners who writes romance said Shelby I think you need a grand gesture and this is like you know it's it's whatever John Cusack with the boom box like uh, whoever in uh what's the Christmas movie with the signs um 
uh, love actually with, you know, the, the signs, something like that. And I'm going, this, I don't think I need that. Like, this isn't a romance novel. Like Tova's not going to go hold a boom box up at someone's window. Like she said, no, I think you really do. Like there's this end of this book, the end of this journey for them as it's sort of coming to its, um, you know, most emotional part, like is missing something. I was like, okay, you might be right. And so I came up with this scene where Tova is having dinner at Ethan's and he gets uh, out of the room with, with Cameron because Cameron's having drama and she's doing what Tova does and she's trying to clean up. Figure I can at least do that. And she takes his, uh, he stores his, because he's a bachelor. He's a, you know, 60-year-old bachelor. He is storing his clothes under the sink because that's a cupboard. And Tova takes one that looks like a rag and wipes up red wine with it. But it turns out it's a t-shirt from uh, the last concert that Jerry Garcia played with the Grateful Dead. <laughs> and so now her grand gesture is she has to replace it. And she, it, it, it's all really simple stuff that she has to do. But for her, it's a big deal. She has to go on the internet onto like eBay and buy it and has to have her friend like help her figure out how to do that. And then she's got to drive to the, you know, other side of the area uh, in traffic. To, it's just all these things that kind of scare her that throughout the book are sort of her um, things that she's afraid to do that she now has to do in order to replace it for him. Um, and I, yeah, it, just, it works so well. I'm so, so glad, you know, again, for these kind of these structures that exist in, in most books, but I think most obviously sometimes in, in romance books, that uh, kind of guide us to what we should be thinking or feeling at a certain part of the story. There's so many great points, like this replacing the t-shirt. I mean, it's just like that moment. Go on eBay, it's $2,000, you know, really? She doesn't, she doesn't bat an eye, she says, do it. You know, I made a mistake. And <laughs> Which you never would think she would do, you know? No, because she's so practical. I mean, she won't buy jam unless it's on sale for BOGO, but you know, so yeah. Yeah, this is different. Um, now, Heather wants to know if you have a Tova in your life. I mean, the Tova that was in my life was definitely my grandmother. Like, I would say it's probably the ghost of her. Um, it's really interesting to me. And I know that this is will be recorded and is public. I don't know who's watching, if there's anyone from my family. Um, so my, I guess, just take a step back. Um, Tova was originally a little bit older. I think I mentioned this earlier in the original manuscript that I wrote, we aged her down a little bit and there were a few good reasons for doing that. Um, but the result is she's actually closer in age to my mother, you know, than my, than my grandmother, you know, she's like in her early seventies. That's not actually that old. Um, and my mom saying like, oh, Toba is this age. Like I don't do this and I don't do that. And she's saying this to me as she's sort of like obsessively wiping her counter. <laughs> I'm like, but you do, you do do some of this stuff. Um, you know, we all do. So, um, like I said, you know, I, my, my family is, has a lot of Toba in all of us. We sort of are, have this, uh, the opposite of what you often see families depicted as in, in movies and in TV shows and pop culture. There's so much of, you know, the big Italian family, you know, or the big, um, you know, Latina family, Latino family, where people are like, in each other's business and loud and big colorful characters with my family is basically the opposite of that <laughs> like we are just very um you know kind of like don't rock the boat like you know stay out of each other's business um you know and there's some some good parts to that and some some not so good parts so 
yeah, I think just I think it's kind of my whole family that is a lot of a lot of tovas in a lot of ways. Um, now, Amy asks, um, I'm sorry, let me just, um, Amy asks, what is the process for being selected for Read with Jenna? Oh my gosh. Um, yeah, it, so it started pretty early on. Um, I remember we were still in edits. So this was like 2021. The book came out in May of 2022. And this would have been the summer of 2021. Um, I was working with my editor at Echo. I think we were on like our second round of edits. I think they were, I had a month to do them and I had kind of put it off a little bit. <laughs> uh, and so they were like due at the end of the week. And, you know, I had a few days and I was, I was a, a good chunk of the way done with it, but not all the way done. And I remember her calling me while I was in the Target parking lot, loading cat litter into my car and taking this call and, you know, having her say like, gosh, like, you know, is there any way that we could just get this a couple of days early? Cause we really want to send it. We've got like a VIP. We want to send it to, it turns out it's Jenna Bush Hager, who's going on vacation the next day. And they really want to get this into her hands so that she can read it on her vacation. And uh, yeah, like I pulled a very, very late all nighter night that night to get those edits done and have it over to her the next morning. Um, and so that was really exciting. Just like even the prospect that like, you know, Jenna Bush Hager is going to read my book and consider it for the Read with Jenna program. Uh, we didn't hear anything for several months. So I sort of thought, you know, okay, well, that's not going to happen. And, you know, that's, at least she read it. That's kind of fun. And I think we found out in maybe February ahead of the May release of that next year that it had been selected, which was super exciting. You know, there was a, there was champagne opened that night. It was also a little bit scary because so many of the big celebrity book clubs really thrive on the, like the secrecy of it and like the, the big reveal, you know, we don't want anyone to know about this until, you know, we have our, our show announcing it, you know, so it's like, like my team at Echo kind of like put the fear of God in me. Like, you know, do not tell anyone. Like, you can tell your husband if you're prepared to divorce him, if this gets out. Because like, they say they can take it away, you know, if it if it gets out ahead of time. So um, really exciting, a little bit stressful in those weeks. You know, I'm watching all of my other authors, you know, particularly debut authors that I'm following on Instagram who are doing like their unboxing videos of their copies when they come in and I'm like I can't do that because it has the read with Jenna thing on the front so I'm just gonna you know kind of sit back here and leave my books in the box in the closet until release day so that it doesn't get out um and then yeah going on we talked a little bit about this in, in the pre-show but uh, one of my first in-person publicity events was going to New York and going on the Today Show live um and this was May of 2022 COVID was still like Omicron was around it was like Omicron era and uh you know I just I remember thinking like I have hardly left my house in the last two years uh I don't do, like do I own clothes I can wear on tv <laughs> I, mean, I ended up doing rent the runway because I was just like I you know I've been living in yoga pants and like you know high buns and no makeup like this is it was such a 180 and just so surreal in so many ways but but also really wonderful. Uh, Jenna is so, so incredibly nice and down to earth. I know people say that about celebrities all the time, but she really is truly an easy person to talk to. Uh, she came into the green room after we did our live segment and was just like standing there talking with my agent and my publicist and I. 
uh, about books for like half an hour. I'm like, don't you have somewhere to be? <laughs> it's like, no, I love books. I love always, she's a book nerd. It's awesome. It's genuine. It's genuine. When she books a book, very, she really wants very the book. She wants Did, that book. I mean, she absolutely reads them. She absolutely is passionate. Um, you know, particularly she, I think, has a um, a, a real uh, passion for bringing debut authors into her program, which, you know, I, I benefited hugely from that. And it's, I think it's awesome that, you know, she's kind of looking out for, the people that you know might not get as much of the splashy um, launch, but but do get it because they get to be a part of her program. Exactly. It's like great. Um, Carissa asks, "How did the Sea Life Center get involved? I visited there and loved it." Oh yeah, they were this random person who I don't think works there anymore. Was the person who was answering my octopus questions during COVID? Um, <laughs> I have a here's here's my plug for writing groups. Um, cause sometimes people say, well, I'm a writer or inspiring author. Like what, what's your number one tip? My number one tip is get involved in a writing community because it will have, you know, not only does it make writing a lot more fun when you have people to bounce ideas off of and be critique partners and go through the, the querying process and the rejection process and, uh, all of that alongside. Um, but you know, also you just get you get exposed to a wide range of people that you wouldn't otherwise know. Um, I'm in one really big online writing group and one of my fellow members uh, lives in Alaska and had, was working, I think for the, for the state in a biology role at that time. So she, you know, was a big help in just helping me with my octopus questions. And when we sort of reached the end of her knowledge, she was like, Hey, I know this person at Alaska sea life, just call them. Uh, and I was so grateful for that contact because they, you know, who knows if they would have answered my call or email otherwise, like, you know, right. when you say that you're an aspiring author, it's like, well, you know, a lot of people are, but when you have that personal contact from someone, it, it carries a lot more weight. Um, but yeah, no, they're fantastic. I, I, I support them, you know, I, I always donate to them and support them. And I just think they do amazing work. Um, and I'm glad that they made it through COVID because I, I think that was, I mean, it was a rough time for, mm. for a lot of those organizations when they didn't have people coming in the door and paying the admission fee and, you know, uh, keeping the things afloat. Literally. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, GJ uh, wants to know, how did you choose the names of the characters? Oh, gosh. Okay. Well, Marcellus has an interesting story behind his name, so I'll, I'll do that first. Um at one point I wanted to name him Marcus Aurelius. And I think part of this is because I studied philosophy in college and thought I was being really cute and clever. You know, Marcus Aurelius is of course the famous Stoic philosopher. Uh, you know, one of the main tenets of Stoicism is that you contemplate your death every day. And so I just thought that was such a clever riff that, you know, you have this octopus who's, you know, writing these journal entries where he's counting down the days to his death, basically, uh, and to name him Marcus Aurelius. And you know, some of the my critique partners that I was working with were kind of like, I don't, you know, I don't know. Like people, people might not get it. It might make it sound like a philosophy book. It's just kind of a lot. I thought it was hilarious, but um, so we kind of just made a mashup. Uh, you know, played around with the words, put them together. I really liked the way that it rolled off the tongue with the word octopus. Uh, honestly, I can't think of him being named anything else now. So uh, hopefully, it worked. Uh, for the rest of my characters, um, I. For Tova specifically, because she came from Sweden, I remember looking at lists of names of people who would have been you know, women born in Sweden, baby girls born in Sweden around the time that she would have been born. And I do that all the time. 
um, my my internet algorithms are constantly convinced that I am going to give birth because I'm always <laughs> looking up names like these name lists. I get a lot of like ads for formula. Um, my, that that time of my life is past. <laughs> but um, yeah, I I wanted something that had Scandinavian roots, but also wasn't one of the really common Scandinavian names. You know, like a like a Freya or an Ingrid. Uh, mostly because I have people in my extended family that are like have all those names already. So, uh, you know, I wanted something that wasn't directly, uh, you know, taking a name that was sort of already taken. And uh, Tova actually, Tova and Tove and various variants on that are in, in a lot of different um, language families. Uh, definitely comes from Scandinavia, uh, comes from Hebrew, um, can come from kind of German. Uh, and I just, I really liked the way that it, it sounded, it was a little bit different, but like recognizable as a, as a name. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Now we're going to end the Q and a with this, um, not with a question, but Marcia says this book was my favorite book I read last year. I gave it to my nephew's 11 year old twins last December, and they were so excited to get it. These twin girls read all the time. I am the same way. And I just love this. Thank you so much. Oh. And Shelby, this is definitely a sentiment we've heard from so many people since the book's release and it's reached readers across all ages. And so that is definitely a testament to, you know, how much this book is meant to so many people. Oh, well, thank you so much. Those are, those are lovely words. I still, oh, I get like, it's just like the highest praise, you know, that people can say that they have given a book to, to someone else to read. Like it's, it's amazing. You know, I, I want to once again encourage people, please think about going out and buying copies for other people. Okay. Because we've been talking about this tonight. I'm putting it in the chat again where you can go out and get a copy of this book and give to other people because it's clear that this has been working for a lot of other gifts. Like if you're looking for the go to <laughs> gift, here's your go to gift, people. It's like, you know, we're sure it's going to be a winner. Well, and here's my plug. I, I think I saw this come through the chat a little bit. If you have people in your life who, who like octopuses or are interested in octopuses. Um, Cy Montgomery also has a great book called The Soul of an Octopus that was hugely important to me when I was, you know, coming up with Marcellus and, and getting him figured out. And she has a new book coming out in April that's called Secrets of the Octopus, which is a book that would make a beautiful gift. It has um, some artwork and photography inside, as well as just, you know, even more <laughs> octopus stories and facts. So uh, you know, you could buy them all three together. It'd be a great little trilogy for someone who's into little, octopuses. Little package, <laughs> the hostess gift. You don't always have to bring food. You can bring the yes. book. It's like it's all okay, you know. Shelby, thank you so much. We so appreciate. I'm looking at the comments over here. Everybody has loved this evening. I will send you the chat because everybody has just been enjoying your being with us so much this evening. We've given so much of yourself, and we really appreciate the time because when we walk away. We feel like, oh, we were able to give our readers a very special experience. So thank you so much for being a part of tonight. Yes, thank you so much for having me. This was so much fun. <laughs> we love doing this, as you can tell. <laughs> if you write another book, you've got to remember to tell your publisher. I really want to do these people again. Yeah. I would absolutely. I've got, to, I've got to finish the book first. Yeah. Nobody well, nobody asked about that, so I didn't have to evade the question. <laughs> well, you know what? It's. I feel like we can ask that question, but the books happen in good time. And there are a lot of people, I mean, my good friend, Kristen Hanna is like, what, three years between books. And when it happens, it happens. And, and she's think, killing it. So good. Killing it. She's killing yeah. it. Actually, she's our guest um, next to, uh, Wednesday night. 
Wednesday night. Oh, wonderful. Be our guest. Oh, and what we did amazing. was we did something different there. We're um, actually bringing her on. We had 25 people win a copy of the book, and those 25 people are going to ask her questions. So we're going to do the questions from the 25 people who gave comments. But yeah, it's wonderful. But it's 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 the same kind of thing. That was it's a great book, and when it's a great book, you can do a lot with it. And that's what you deliver to us. And I'm sorry it took me so long to read the book. I feel like I'm going to have to go to book like uh, penitentiary or something like that. Oh. I finally did get to it. You know, I think that's the important part. So thank you so much. And I'm just going to do a couple of quick announcements. Next Wednesday night at seven o'clock, we're welcoming Kristen Hanna. Um, she's going to be talking about, uh, she's going to do a live uh, book reporter talks to interview. I usually just do those interviews myself. We're bringing on some readers to do the questions. Tonight's interview will be available on YouTube and podcast later. Everybody's always asking me that, and we'll alert you when it's live. And on Wednesday, March 13th at 2 o'clock, we will be doing our hosting our um, monthly Bookachino Live book preview event, where we're going to look at March titles through April 2nd and a look ahead to May. And sign up available now on Book Reporter for that. And um, also, if you want to stay on top of what we're doing, don't forget to sign up for our Book Reporter newsletter. We also have a news newsletter called events at bookreporter.com or the Book Report Network. So, And there are 180 Book Reporter Talks to author interviews that you can check out. They're available on our YouTube channel, the Book Report Network. We thank you so much for joining us this evening. Um, our audience is always very special, and we really appreciate your taking the time to be with us tonight. So thanks, and we look forward to seeing you hopefully next Wednesday night. Thank you for listening to Book Reporter Talks To. Don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Support us by sharing on social media or by telling a friend about us. And we look forward to next time on Book Reporter Talks To.